Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Yosemite Valley, one of the most beautiful places you will ever see in your entire life, I promise you. Who here has been to Yosemite Valley? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So the one thing I love about geology is it tells a story. And it tells a story that's continuing to happen even though it appears to us that it's stopped. The scale of geology is just so intense it's hard to fathom. In fact, I barely figured it out and had to like really cram on the final exam to get all the, the layers and everything correct. But it tells a story. And so if you know how to read the rocks, you know what the story says. So Yosemite National Park is what we call a glacial valley. It has some of the most beautiful waterfalls on the face of the planet. And incredible, I know, they're really excited about it too. Incredible amount of waterfalls in a, such a short period. Like you're walking through the valley, guys, and it looks like there's just this landscape, behind, like, like a painting, but it's actually real. Like it's real, okay? So what happened was, you know, we know California is going to eventually drop off into the middle of the ocean someplace because there's something, you know, we got two plates, plate tectonics, diving right into each other. So back in the day, millions of years ago, okay, there was an uplifting and actually a cracked piece of the crust that started tilting like this to create the Sierra Nevadas right where I was hiking this summer. I know, I can't, I can't not be crunchy up here. So what's really cool is over time, rivers had kind of eroded a little bit, but it wasn't until the temperature of the earth started changing and we hit the ice age when you had glaciers forming in these upper altitudes. And how you get this incredible U-shaped valley is because the glaciers basically just came and just like bulldozed out these big pieces of rock. And if you think about it, the rivers were flowing and they hit the glaciers. Well, once the glaciers fell and had, you know, plowed out the, all that rock, then all of a sudden you have this huge drop, right? That's how you get Yosemite Falls. Thank you, thank you. I know. Pinnacles National Park. I promise this won't be the whole thing. Pinnacles National Park, I will have you know, is one of the newest national parks. I think it is the newest national park in the US. And it was founded in 2013. The cool thing about Pinnacles National Park is the rest of it, even though this is kind of by Monterey, Northern California, the rest of it, guess where it is? It's in LA, on the other side of the San Andreas Fault Line, okay? So before the San Andreas Fault did this sort of thing, it was this like volcanic, underneath the surface forming of these incredible granite, slow cooling magma that creates really amazing batholiths, as they're called, big pieces of rock. And then picture it as like one circle of created rock. And then the fault goes right through it. Suddenly, oh, they're split up. It's so sad, right? So now you have this really amazing national park of all these cool batholiths. It's actually where condors make their nests, so it's actually pretty protected. And there's these cool talus caves where you can like climb in through all these boulders. This takes time, right? But if you know how to read the rocks, you can, you can see the story that happened, that formed that, or maybe a few. 
Colorado National Monument, who's been there? Yes, okay. Similarly to the geology of the Grand Canyon, do you guys see the layers that are happening here? Big time. This is what's called sedimentary rock. Over time, different sediments have been placed down by different rivers and they can congeal together and are cemented together. But because the cements that hold those particles together erode at different um, times, you get huge um, distortions in terms of like big canyons. So like this layer right here was super, super hard to erode, but everything else eroded around it. So you get these cool like pinnacles. If you know how to read the rocks, if you know how to tell what's happening, you can see a much bigger story and you start to understand how it gets there. That's why I didn't study chemistry or biology. Like the timing of this is amazing. The fact that God took that much time to create these cool places that we get to adventure in. So you can see it on a big scale, but you can also see it on a small scale too. So we got some rocks to pass about. I want you to just take note of how smooth these are. This is not rocket science, it's rock science, guys. I need these back, by the way. So the, you see how smooth they are? How do you think they got that smooth? Water. And time. They've rubbed up against each other maybe. Maybe the water is eroded. Maybe it's chemical weathering, not just mechanical weathering. There's all kinds of fun phrases in geology. These are coasters. This is like the real rock. This gets really, these are actually prized possessions in my home along with the rest of the rocks. But you can, this is called a conglomerate. So it tells like multiple stories in one. So you see these individual rocks, Jasper, I think there's some chert in there and some quartzite. Like they formed someplace else, were cemented together through metamorphic activity, and then were carried by glaciers to my favorite island in the upper peninsula of Michigan. And so then they make all these like kitschy things. But all that to say, you can, if you guys really want to look, they're just great. There's, there's just, yeah, I need these back, don't take them. And then of course there's fossils. You get the idea, I digress. So again, what I love about geology is it tells a story. And I think sometimes we think about, oh yeah, the rocks have just always been there. They haven't. It seems like the story stops. Do you know that the Himalayas are still getting taller because the Indian plate is going into another one and driving those mountains up? Do you know that the Grand Canyon is getting deeper? Thank you. Exposing more and more layers. Again, the story is told in the rocks. You just, you need to know how to pay attention. You need to know how to see them. One geology class I took in college actually made us stare at rocks and draw them for hours because you actually see what's happening in the rocks. Thanks for bearing with me. I know that's super dorky, but do you get the scale of it? You can look around and you see, you see a story. You can read the story in the rocks. Well, guess what? This is the same thing, okay? This is what we call the story of God and his people. So I wanna to talk today about the genre of the historical narrative. It's just the story of God and his people, all right? So, and guess what? It's still continuing. That's still us, right? In this story, what happened in the Bible is not what should have happened. 
It's a story of God and his people. The people don't always act as we think they should, right? And we're kind of surprised sometimes by how God acts in that story. But we can read the story. We can glean from the story. How does God act in these situations? What is humanity? What are humans like, right? And guess what? I'd argue that it's not much different today. Like the God of the Bible is the God of today. The same laws and scientific principles that shaped the Grand Canyon, that shaped Yosemite National Park, are still at play today. It just moves so slow we can't really see it. So sometimes it seems like the story has stopped, but it hasn't. So the, the narrative of the Bible, again, is the story of God and his people. They've been compiled by different writers throughout history to remind God's people how he's acted, what they need to remember, his faithfulness, how he's intervened. All right, so we're going to talk, I'm going to try to go pretty quickly through some of this, but we're going to do kind of a zoom out and then a zoom in here, talking about specifically the story of Joseph. All right, so the story of Joseph is in the book of Genesis. All right, so we have Abraham. I mean, you start off with who? Who's the first two? Thanks, guys. Adam and Eve, that doesn't go so well. They end up building, you know, the, the brothers fight. There's a huge tower. They get spread out. Then there's Noah. Noah and his family are chosen by God to be saved as God demolishes the earth with the flood. God makes a covenant with Noah. He's saying, I'm never going to do that again. Stick with me. Then we fast forward down to Abraham. And this is where the story really focuses in on God's interaction with a particular family. He's choosing to covenant with Abraham. So I want you to look. We're going to take a quick screenshot here of Genesis 12, 1 through 3. If we take a look, God has reached out to Abraham. He said, I want you to leave your family, which is just something that wasn't done in that culture. It was such a communal, familial uh, culture. You don't just leave your family. We do it all the time, but you didn't then, right? So this was a huge call, a huge step of faith. And because this is what God says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So this is this covenant promise that he makes with Abram. And so this is the zoomed out story of God's choosing this one person, this one family to be covenanted with, to be walking with them. And it's a foreshadowing. This verse is a foreshadowing of the rest of the story of God and eventually with us. He will make Abram a blessing to all peoples, all nations. That's including us. So you may or may not know how the story goes, and I'm going to zip through some of these things, but Abram can't have kids. His wife can't have kids. Throughout the story, you see Abram doubting God, but he still believes, and God still works with him. Eventually, he has a kid. Well, that kid then has twins. And Jacob, one of the twins, who was actually second born instead of the firstborn, he then kind of takes the story and has a bunch of kids because he has like four wives. And we're going to focus in on Joseph, okay? So just to see that 
the, the zoomed out story is that, again, God's making a promise with Abraham, you will be a blessing to nations. And as we read throughout the whole Bible, the arc of it is eventually the climax of Jesus, that he is the blessing to all nations, that he is accessible to all nations. All right, so we got the story of Joseph. I actually looked online to see if I could have flannel graphs. Does anybody know what a flannel graph is? Thank you. They're like these weird, like cutout characters of fabric that stick to boards, and I thought maybe I could do like a flannel graph thing, and it didn't work. So, yes, I actually, I thought about Veggie Tales as well. There's so many options out there, but instead we're just gonna whiz through it. So God's partnered with this one family. And we're gonna reel in, we're following all of his kids until he gets to the point where we have Jacob, he's got 12 kids, and one of his youngest sons is his favorite, all right? So Joseph is the favorite. He was born of Rachel, who was the favorite wife. Jacob's not the brightest cookie in the box. It's not great to show favoritism over your kids. You're basically creating space for strife. He gives Joseph this amazing coat, basically saying through that gift, he is, um, he's going to be, he gets the double portion. He's the one he's choosing to kind of carry on the line. So he's favorite. Joseph in his, you know, dreams, ends up having a dream where he sees 11 sheaves of uh, wheat rise up and bow down to his sheave of wheat, okay? He's like, cool, cool, cool. Everyone's bowing down to me. Then he has another dream where there's 11 stars, a moon and a sun, and they all come down and bow down to his stars. Well, any wise person would probably just keep that to themselves, but he decided to tell his brothers and his mom and dad about these dreams, and he creates a lot of animosity with his brothers. They start to hate him, because not only is, the fa- is he the favorite, but he's saying that someday they'll bow down to him, right? So there's a lie. He goes out one day to go visit his brothers. They're tending the sheep. He can't find them, so he gets redirected. They see him coming from afar, and the hatred in them, the lack of accountability, decide, you know what, why don't we just kill him? Nobody will know. We'll just say he got eaten by a lion someplace. It'll be fine. Dad will be upset, but he'll get over it. We just can't stand to live with this guy anymore. So they throw him in a pit, and they have a change of heart. They listen to one of the other brothers who's like, no, 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 let's make a profit. Let's sell him. Let's sell him instead. So little Joseph here, he's lost his coat. They sell him to some traders. And the lie is that they bring the coat splattered with sheep blood to dad, to Jacob, and say, oh, sorry, dad, he died. He's a mess. He's a wreck. The the rest of the kids are like, ooh, he's really taking that hard. And in the meantime, Joseph is sold into slavery. So he goes from being this prized son to being a slave. That kind of sucks, right? And it probably would seem a little hopeless because then he was sold again to another family. But what's really cool as, as the story is written is it makes an emphasis on the fact that God was with Joseph this whole time. So as he's sold into this other family, he, God is with him and, and blesses him. And as he's a slave in this household, they start to recognize, wow, everything Joseph does turns out well. Huh. Maybe I should give him more responsibility. 
So Joseph and his family gets more and more responsibility, so much so that he's basically running the whole household. But there's this wife, the wife of Potiphar, the, the guy he's working for at the time, thinks Joseph's pretty hot. I mean, I think he says he's pretty handsome. And she uh, starts to make some moves. Joseph, come on. He's like, no, 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 not a good idea. Not interested. She comes at him again, comes at him again. Joseph's like, no, this is evil. I don't want to do this. No, thank you. Comes at him again, a little too forcefully, grabs his jacket. He doesn't know what to do. He just runs. So there's another lie associated with a jacket, which is interesting, right? Potiphar's wife is like, look, he was trying to assault me, and here's this garment. And basically, he gets framed for sexual assault and gets placed in jail. Again, not a great turn here. How could it have gotten worse? It seems like the story has hit a hopeless point, right? Take a second to think about that, though. Like, we all hit these points in our lives where it seems kind of hopeless, where, I don't, I mean, pick your situation, right? Maybe the job interview didn't go so great. Maybe, maybe it was a loss much, much greater than just a job. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it was a hoped-for offspring. Maybe it was a hoped-for relationship. What, whatever it is, we all hit these points of despair. What I love about Joseph in the story, again, it says, if this is the story of God and his people, that God is still with him, even in jail. You'd probably argue otherwise, like, doesn't look too great, bro. But at the same time, Joseph is still seen as someone who God is with, who continues to get God's favor. So even in jail, he starts to excel. What I love about this is, is people see it and they give him more and more responsibility. Another interesting context of the story is they suspect that maybe Potiphar knew that his wife was lying because he wasn't placed into just regular jail with the rest of the thieves and murderers and rapists. He was actually placed into like the royal jail where the former heads of state are placed, like the political jail, if you will, which is where, yeah, yeah, white collar jail, which is where he meets two other white collar guys the uh, baker and the cupbearer. Two other guys who used to work directly with the king. The baker, I mean, the croissant man, and the cupbearer, the one who sips the wine to make sure it's not poisoned before he gives it to Pharaoh. So he meets these two guys. They both have awful dreams on the same night and are like, what do these dreams mean? And Joseph is like, well, I don't know, but God does. Tell them to me. So They both tell him these dreams. They're pretty similar. They have three-day increments of like, in three days, this will happen. In three days, that will happen. The cupbearer, in three days, the pharaoh's going to tap him on the shoulder and say, come on back. So the baker's like, cool, that sounded positive. I'm going to tell him my dream. Baker tells him his dream, and, and Joseph's like, three days, you're dead. And... Of course, it actually happens because God did give him the interpretation for those dreams. And the story takes a turn. Like, Joseph's like, cupbearer, please remember me when you get to your position of power. Save me. You know I'm innocent. 
cupbearer goes away. And then there's an incredible delay. Two years he's stuck in prison. He knows someone knows. He knows someone in power. He knows someone knows who can get him out of this. Two years he's sitting there in despair. Again, the waiting. This is part of the people of God. They, they wait. They believe that God's with them. They trust even if they don't know if it'll turn out the way they hope. But waiting is a spiritual practice. And to know, too, that the story isn't done yet. So two years later, Joseph finally gets his break. Pharaoh has some dreams. The cupbearer is like, oh, yeah, there's this guy. He can interpret dreams. You should call him up. So Joseph shaves, showers, gets ready to see Pharaoh, and interprets his dreams, saying there's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. You better get ready for it, because the seven years of famine is going to be pretty rough. And Pharaoh is like, cool, you seem smart. You do the job. You prepare us. You take some of the surplus from the seven years of plenty. You put that away. You store that, and then we'll figure out how to take care of it. So all this time, Joseph is away from his family. And the famine didn't just strike Egypt. It struck the whole land, including where his family lived. So either they're going to die or they're going to go find some food. So his brothers take a sojourn to Egypt. They hear they have a ton of food because they saved up somehow and knew this was coming. And they end up at the feet of Joseph. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Could be pretty tempting, right, to just lay into them, make them suffer. And he kind of does a little bit. It's kind of funny how he, if you read the story in depth, how he actually makes them sweat a little bit. They buy some grain. He sends them away. He wants to meet their father. He thinks they're, he says they're spies. And they're like, no, 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 dude, we just want food. And he ends up um, giving them back the money that they used to pay for the grain. And they're like freaking out like, oh, no, now they're going to think that we really are spies, that we, that we stole this stuff. I'm getting into the weeds. But all that to say, he, he makes them sweat a little bit, sends them back to his dad and demands that they bring their youngest brother back because they ended up, another Simeon had stayed as kind of collateral. Okay, so brothers go back. They wait for a while till they run out of food. Then they come back. They bring Benjamin. And basically, Joseph sees his brothers, and he just he loses it. He weeps, right? He's like, oh, my gosh, my, my brothers are here. And he finally reveals himself in this big family reunion, very dramatic, and asks that they bring Jacob back with him. So Jacob, his dad, the one who loved him most, makes the incredible trip to come to Egypt. They end up settling in an area of Egypt. Jacob actually ends up meeting Pharaoh and blesses him twice, which I thought was interesting. And eventually, Jacob, after having been re reunited with Joseph and his kids, ends up dying. They take his ashes back to the land of Canaan and kind of perform a burial, right? And then the climax of the story, right? Most people think it's like, oh, yeah, cool, when they see, see the brothers, awesome. But what I love about this story is after Jacob dies, his brothers still lie to him because they think, oh, my gosh, he's going to come after us. Now that Jacob's dead, he's going to come get us and kick us out. He's not going to take care of us. And they come to Joseph and they say, 
just, just be nice to us. Dad said you had to be nice. Before he died, Dad said you had to be nice, which he didn't. Or maybe he did, but it's not in the Bible. So, And Joseph's final words to his brothers, if we look at 50, 19. You guys hung with me pretty good. Good job. It's a long story. It's one of the longest narratives in the Bible, which I thought it would just be fun because maybe I could use some flannel grams. But. So Genesis 15, 19 through 21. So his brothers come to him and say, please don't hurt us. And Joseph's response was, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, and saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The grand arch of the story is is God is partnering with this family. And eventually we see down the pipeline that it's, it's Joseph, then it's the Israelites, David, and eventually Jesus. And he is the redemption for all of us. The people in the Bible do some pretty crazy stuff. They sold their brother. They were going to kill him. But God works regardless. God works even in that space. Even though we're evil, we're broken. But the truth is, the story's not done yet. Genesis actually ends with with Joseph in a coffin. He hasn't seen the promised land. There's this idea that we're not quite there yet. We're still in Egypt, and we know kind of Moses, all the things, the, the great exodus. But this idea that God works in his story with his people, whether we're perfect or not, whether we do crazy stuff or we get it right. God works regardless. And the truth is the story continues even after this. And he continues to work and he's continuing to work because guess what? We're part of that family now. So Jesus opened up the door for all of us to be a part of Abram's family, that that covenant is extended to us. And so some of the things that we learn about God in this story is that he is not prohibited by our human behavior. He's not prohibited by really tragic turns in the story, but that he continues to work. He continues to offer hope that it's never the end of the story, even though it seems to have stopped. I'm going to tie this in. I love the story because we can all relate with the hopelessness that Joseph felt. I I feel like I've been on a a journey, (laughs) a pretty long one, right, of like hoping for something and it's still not happening and being on the roller coaster of thinking it's going to happen and it doesn't and thinking it's going to happen and it doesn't. And it's, it's easy to feel forgotten sometimes. It's easy to not be able to see where God's working in your life. It's easy to just to feel like, am I stuck in this rut again? But the truth is that the story's not over. And we're going to have some time in just a little bit to think about, well, where is God working in your story? I wrote this really sort of dorky essay a while ago, like 10 years ago, talking about geology. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So I'm going to read that. Okay. 
Never underestimate the power of water and time. Some of the most magnificent places that I've ever visited have been the results of water, whether frozen, flowing, or simply falling, carving its way through seemingly unshakable rock. From the narrows of Zion to the majestic half dome of Yosemite, the subtle effect of water on rock has left behind jaw-dropping views that draw visitors from all over the world. Water, what we drink, what we are made of, what we play in and bathe in, has the tremendous capacity to morph what we build with, what we walk on, what we refer to as solid rock. You'd think the rocks would win, but never underestimate what water and the eternal patience of our God can do. Sometimes the immovable becomes moldable in God's timing. It may take time, but it will always be more than worth the wait. So I want to take some time just in your own little minds to think about a few questions. Where in your life do you see God working in spite of you? Where maybe you were the crazy brothers <laughs> that wanted to sell a sibling into slavery <laughs> or some other element of evil, right? Where in your story does it seem like there is an ending or a lack of hope? When in your story have you seen God revitalize that hope? Are there stories that you kind of think back on? Oh, wow, yeah, I remember when it seemed really dark and then God came through in this way. Those are stories. Those are the rocks that you lean on when you're in a new space of despair or lack of hope. And then what stories do you lean into when you need to be reminded of the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, who are with you. So just take some time to do that. Where are you in that story? God is the same God of the Bible that he is today, and we can expect him to intervene, to work in spite of us. And it's, it's our job to be people that walk with him. So we'll just take a little time to do that, and then Dave will wrap us up. Obviously, you could sit and journal and reflect on those questions for a lot longer, but I just think the underlying message as I was talking with Christy this week and she was sharing with me what she was going to talk about, it's just very timely. And in many ways, I think it's the core value of what we're trying to do as a church family. You know, there's this kind of famous saying in communication theory that the medium's the message. And the scriptures come to us in all kinds of genres, but predominantly as narratives and stories. And those stories end unfinished. And even in the New Testament, we're left in this big, ambiguous, in-between space of that narrative ongoing. And even heading into a scattered season where some of the church programming of a Sunday gathering is stripped away. And it really presses the question for us, like, what part of this story is actually enmeshed into my story when the programming is taken away? What season am I in? That's why we push rule of life because not any two seasons are the same. So what's the Lord saying in this season? What do you need? What community do you need? What support do you need? What disciplines do you need? What risks is God inviting us to take? And in many ways, like Christy said, it, normal life often feels 
like it's just static. But great analogy, great metaphor, we're the rocks. And, and I think that that formation process that we all really long for, that we've been talking about this whole series, it only happens when we actually try and participate in the reality of the story. We don't get that formation. We don't get the water washing and smoothing us out and the wind blowing and the pressure forming and the chemical something conglomerate stuff. We don't get that by just clocking in and doing our churchy things. We get that by trying our best, even when it's really weak sauce, to actually lean into this story and realize that the last narrative of the New Testament is Paul sitting in prison telling people about Jesus and then the book just ends. And you're like, wait, what? That's the end? Because now the community of God is ongoing and we're a part of it. So just echoing an invitation this week and in the coming couple weeks to be prayerful about what's your season? What's the Lord inviting us into as a community? What's he inviting you into as an individual or your family or a few close friends? And then we'd invite you to try and respond and lean into that. And you have a community of friends here to support and help you along the way. So I think that's it. Feel free to linger and eat up all the food and we'll see a bunch of you next week. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.